Hi, everybody. Hi. Made it there. <laughs> My name is Charles. I'm um, one of the pastors on the teaching team. Um, greetings to all of you who are here and those of you joining us uh, from Traditions, Gospel Fusion, downtown. Uh, big shout out to those of you who are, who are streaming online and those of you who are listening to our podcast. And then also for those of you in the uh, Fitchburg site, today's a big Sunday for you guys. Uh, today they are uh, celebrating their nine-year anniversary of, anniversary of worshiping in Fitchburg and serving that community. So right now I just want to take a moment. <laughs> all the size of all the venues, guys. Big, big round of applause, big celebration. Fitchburg, we love you guys. You guys rock. All right, let's hear it. All right. Now, now, today we are in a series called Becoming. Uh, we are reading the book, this Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and today we're looking at the passage where Jesus tells his disciples to love your enemies. And yes, I'm aware that I'm teaching this passage in the middle of what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, for those of you who are new around here, we plan our sermon series months in advance. Okay, so we didn't choose this. In fact, in fact, if I'm preparing a, a, a sermon in direct response to what's happening in Ukraine, I would not be choosing this passage. But there's also no denying that this passage is hugely relevant. It speaks very much to the moment. It just has a message that's really, really hard for us. I mean, right now, I think for many of us this past week... We've been, our eyes are glued to the, to the image on the, on the screens, and, and we're, what we're seeing just breaks our heart. Bombed out buildings, kids being injured, people lying on the streets. The stories of these refugees are just heartrending. And I'm sure we're going through all kinds of feelings this past week. And I'm pretty sure love for enemy wasn't what you were feeling this past week. So this sermon... I think it's going to be tense for many of us. We're going to feel this tension all the way through. And for some of you here, you're thinking, well, it's not just Ukraine. There's, there's been warfare. There's been, been atrocities and violence all around the world all this time. And some of you, you come from areas like that, and you have families and friends there, and you're thinking about them. And for you, a message to love our enemies is going to cause tension. And it's not just warfare. It's not just on a national level. Some of us... You've had people who have hurt you. You've been assaulted. You've been abused. You've faced oppression. You've faced discrimination. You've been falsely accused. You've been robbed. You've been sued and lost your business. You have enemies. People who come after you out to destroy you, out to hurt you. And there is that hunger deep inside your heart that cries out for justice, for something to make it right. And so you're going to feel tension for this message as well. Many of you are going to have questions, all kinds of questions about how to apply what Jesus says in this broken world, in this 21st century broken world. And I'm going to apologize right now. I cannot get to your questions. I'm going to focus on talking about what Jesus is saying. However... I'm going to kick them off to the webinar, to the Q&A. Next Sunday night, 8 p.m., um, go to blockout.church slash becoming. Register to, to come and then uh, send in your questions, and we'll try to tackle some of these questions there. <sighs> so uh, a lot of tension, right? I think deep breath. <sighs> Let me begin by reminding us that the Sermon on the Mount 
is Jesus' proclamation of the good news of the coming of the kingdom of heaven, which means at its heart, the sermon is an, is an invitation. It's Jesus inviting people into the kingdom, and he's not inviting people by, by, by telling people, hey, here's what you want, here's, here's what you want. He's not giving stuff away. No, what he's doing is he's, he's describing this, this radically reimagined way of being human that is empowered by the Spirit of God. And he says to a bunch of people who are deeply dissatisfied with the world, and he says to them, you know, there's another way. Here's a different way of being human. Let me describe it for you, and you think about it and see if that's something you want to become. And then for the past few weeks, we've been working on the first major session of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a series of contrasts. Basically, there's a sixth of them. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, well, here's what you think is good in your world. Here's what I'm bringing for the kingdom. That's what's going on in in the section. And so today, we're looking at the last two contrasts in the series, and we're reading them together because they're both about how to respond to people who are trying to hurt you. And right here, we get absolute proof that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is not talking about life in some future ideal world. No. Jesus says, okay, there's this new way of life, new way of being human right here in this broken world. And in this broken world, there are people who are out to hurt others. There are people who are coming to get you individually, as groups, or with an army. I know you're thinking that I'm talking about Ukraine. I'm actually talking about first century Palestine. You see, in the first century, Jewish people in Palestine that live under the occupation of the Roman army. Yeah. The Romans are the bad guys. The Romans are the enemies. And the Romans, they prop up this, this, this puppet government drawn from the Jewish elite. And this Jewish elite, they don't have any incentive to run an honest government. They are rich, and they are powerful, and they're, out, and they're in it for themselves. Which means if you have something they want, they will come after you. And then there are the Jewish partisans fighting a guerrilla war in the countryside. And they form assassination squads. Okay? And they target Roman officials, and especially Jewish collaborators. Ever wonder why tax collectors are so hated in first century Jewish, among the Jewish people? They are Jewish people collecting money for the Romans. This is the world that Jesus lives in. It is a world that is violent, that is corrupt, that is divided, that is politically unstable, that is rife with anger. And there's a hint of of all-out war with the Romans right around the corner. This is the world that Jesus lives in. And into all this, Jesus steps up and says, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the ones who ask you. And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, I'm just going to say this is totally outrageous. This is some of the most outrageous things Jesus ever said. Okay? And it's outrageous not not just because it sounds utterly impossible to do, which it is. 
But it's outrageous because I think many of us would fundamentally disagree with Jesus. We would say, hey, Jesus, what you're describing here, this is not the right way to live. This is not the superior way of being human. When somebody slaps your cheek, you don't turn them the other one, let them hit the other side. No. When somebody comes after you with a lawsuit, you do not give them more than what they're suing for. No. This is a broken world. There are evil people in this world who are out to dominate and control and hurt others. And they will use the law. They will use violence. They will use soldiers. And loving them is not going to do anything. Praying for them is not going to do anything. What you need to do is stop them. And the only way that stops them, you hit them back hard. That's the only thing they understand. So Jesus, all of this, it's not realistic. It's pie in the sky. It's hold hands and sing kumbaya and everything will be peachy. No, Jesus, you need to get real. I think Jesus realizes that. I think, I think Jesus realized that for, for his audience in the, in the first century, and I think for pretty much every audience throughout history, what he says seems utterly unreasonable, utterly preposterous, utterly unrealistic. And so Jesus decides that he needs to explain himself. And so he includes an explanation. Here it is. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your, your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Was that a helpful explanation? I'm guessing not. I'm guessing this explanation causes more questions than it answers. And, and I think a lot of the questions arises from verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. A lot of people look at that and just go, what's the point? This is impossible. What is Jesus even talking about? So here's what's going to happen in the sermon. I'm pretty much going to read the passage backwards. I'm going to start with verse 48 when I understand it. And then we're going to understand how that helps us understand Jesus' logic and his reasoning and then we're going to go back and look at what Jesus commands his followers to do. Okay? So that's what's coming up. All right? So, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This verse causes problems. This is the verse that causes many people to say, you know, Jesus can't mean what he says in the Sermon on the Mount. He can't mean that because it's not possible to be perfect. It's not possible to live a perfect life. It's not possible to go through life without making mistakes, doing everything right. Right? And especially for those of us who are Christ followers, we read that and we go, well, perfect means refers to sinlessness. And we all know there's only one person in history who lives a sinless life. So no, this is not possible. This is an impossibility. Jesus can't mean this. So let me see if I can say this as clearly and as emphatically as I possibly can. All right, listen up. This verse is not about sinless perfection. This verse is not about doing everything exactly right. It's not about making no mistake. Okay, let me say that again. This verse is not about sinless perfection. So, in Greek, the word perfect is teleos. The Greek word can mean perfect, but it has a whole range of other meanings. But that doesn't even matter because Jesus is not speaking in Greek. Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. And so, 
most likely he's using one of these two words, tamim or shalem. Tamim or shalem. And these two words, they have a very similar set of meaning. The, the, the core idea is to be whole or to be undivided. A person who is tamim or shalem is somebody who is whole. Their, their beliefs, their, their desires, their thoughts, their actions, their words, they come together. They fit together. Which means these two words were never meant to talk about something that's impossible. In the Old Testament, there are people who are described as tamim and shalem. It's totally doable. Now, now let me see if I can get into a little bit more about what this, what this word means, what this idea means. Um, now, when I go to a restaurant, I am not a whole person. Okay? I am not tamim, I'm not shalem. When people give me a menu, I freak out. Because I look at all those options and go, oh, my, I want to eat. Oh, that looks good. That looks good. That looks really yummy. Oh, my gosh. Well, look what's in somebody else's table. I want some of that. Oh, my gosh. I start freaking out, especially when I'm really hungry. I can't decide. I can't decide. It frustrates Serena to no end. Okay. <laughs> now, when we first got married, this is what I would do. We would go to Serena and we'd go to a restaurant. I would order something that I want to eat. And then I would try to influence Serena so that she orders something that I want to eat. <laughs> and then I would eat really fast, and I can have some of hers. It's shameful, I know, it's very shameful. I'm a bad husband. <laughs> Go ahead and judge, I know, okay. But my point is this, okay. In a restaurant, I am not whole. My desires are splintered. They're going all over the place. That dish, that dish, that dish. My actions are not whole. I'm ordering one dish, but I'm trying to get access to another dish. I am not whole, I'm divided. I am not tamim, I'm not shalem. You notice how difficult it is these days? to live a life that's whole? Technology. I love technology. But I don't know about you, but this thing, when I'm thinking, when I'm writing, when I'm working on something, I'm focused, what it does, every five minutes, boom, a text, boom, an email, and I'm distracted, I'm pulled away from what I'm trying to do, right? I, I'm, I, I cannot be whole. I cannot be focused. I, I, I go into a cafe and I see two people sitting there at a table. They both of them would have their phone right there on the desk, having a conversation. But what does this mean? It means at any moment, we're going to break off what we're doing here to respond to this. Now, I'm not calling anybody out because this is what I do. Every time I sit down, right there. But by the way, uh, it's turned off, so don't worry. <laughs> not going to answer a phone right now. <laughs> but it's not just technology. It's not just technology. The way our world is set up is such that our, our, our lives are divided into different spheres, work, family, school. They're all separated, and they don't come together. They don't fit very easily together. Right? You notice that? Right? Does your beliefs, our beliefs don't match our feelings, don't match our actions. The things we're doing, the things we spend time on, the things we're spending money on, they don't come together to fit a coherent whole, to fit a, a, a big idea, a big vision of what we think is right and good. We are not whole. We live lives of disintegration. And Jesus says, be whole. Therefore, as your heavenly father is whole. Our heavenly father is whole. He is somebody whose his desire, his beliefs, his thoughts, his actions, his words, they all fit together. This is who God is. And verse 48 starts with, Jesus saying, be whole in the way that God is whole. Now I ask you, we all ask, how does that help us when it comes to dealing with people 
who are trying to hurt us. What does Jesus say? Well, be like God. How does God deal with people who are opposed to him, who are his, who, who, are, who, are, who rebel against his rule, who are his enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What is Jesus saying? Our God is someone who loves his enemies. Do you see that? Is that your impression of who God is? Because I think many of us, we have a fundamental misunderstanding of who God is, right? We see God fundamentally as a judge, enforcing rules. And if you obey the rules, you get rewarded. And if you disobey the rules, you get smacked. That's how we think God is. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not who God is at all. God is somebody who loves his enemies. Someone who takes care of the evil and the good, takes care of the righteous and the unrighteous. That's who God is. We think God likes people and takes care of people who are good and smashes the evil people, and, and Jesus says, no, that's not true at all. Right? That's not true at all. Jesus says, God is somebody who loves his enemies, and in fact, what Jesus is doing here is he's doing a little bit of foreshadowing, right? Jesus, love your enemies. Well, guess what? That's him. That's what Jesus does. Jesus, as God, loves his enemies. Romans chapter 5 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have not been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, should we be saved through his life? Amen. Our God is a God who loves sinners and dies for his enemies. Did you know that? Yeah. And then Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Well, that's him. That's what Jesus does. Jesus, as God, prays for those who crucify him. Luke chapter 23, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. This is God. Our God is a God who loves his enemies. In fact, that defines the love of God. It is what distinguishes God's love from the love of this world. People often say, oh yeah, it's, you know, we are known by our love. All right? our, our love is what separates Christ followers from the rest of the world. That's simply not true. Okay, that's simply not true. People love. We're not the only ones who love. Lots of people love. Lots of people, lots of people live to serve others. Lots of people risk their lives to save others. The problem with this world is not a lack of love. The problem with this world is who we love. If you love those who love you, Jesus says, <laughs> that's in the Greek, by the way. Even the lowest of the low love those who love them. Amen. Today, Jesus would say something like, you know, 
Even drug dealers love those who love them. If you greet only your own people, if you only make connections, have relationship with people in your tribe, in your ethnic group, in your racial group, in your socioeconomic level, in your educational background, in your political persuasion, in the same political party, then how are you different from this corrupted, broken world? How are you different? In Jesus' time, it says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I think we're still there. I think we're still there. I think we live in a world in which we love those who love us, we love those who are in our tribe, in our group, and we love those who are like us. That's core to who we are. I'm an introvert. Sometimes I have to travel to conferences, I have to walk into rooms that are full of strangers. Those of you who are introverts, I'm about to describe your nightmare scenario, so feel free to just kind of tune out for like 30 seconds, okay? Just go ahead and do that if you want to. So I'm walking into these, you know, this room, and I'm getting better, but there's still this kind of like that momentary panic, like, oh my gosh, look at all these people. And then there's like, oh, right, I'm supposed to talk to people, right? But who do I talk to? So I'm walking around, no, no, maybe, no, yeah, maybe, no, 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 maybe, no. Right, I'm just kind of circling around the room, right? What am I doing? What am I doing? What's, what's going on in my head? I'm, I'm trying to find connections, right? I'm trying to find somebody maybe from the same geographical background, maybe some same educational background, maybe same age group, maybe same ethnicity. You know, basically, middle-aged Chinese-American from the Midwest who studied the Old Testament. <laughs> Lots of those around. <sighs> but that's who we are, right? That's who we are. We, are. we are people who are drawn to people who are like us. We are, we are, we like people for what is familiar and we are, and we're fearful of what is different. And that's core to our brokenness as humans. And that's not who God is. Our God is whole. His belief, his desires, his thoughts, his actions, his words, they all fit together. Our God is a God who sees every single person as a unique image of him, and he sees each person as having more value than all the art pieces in all the world's museums combined. He knows every person. He knows their story. He knows exactly how they're broken, why they're broken. He knows why they resist him so much, and he yearns to embrace them and bring them back to him, and he is willing to die to do it. Amen. That's God, that's the love of God. And that love is the story of the Bible. Amen. The story of the Bible is God's single-minded mission to transform enemies into friends, to invite enemies into his family, to embrace enemies as his sons and daughters. And how does he accomplish that? Judgment? No. Kindness. Now, don't get me wrong. There is judgment at the very end, at the very end of history. And the Bible does record that at times, God exercises judgment, punishment on individuals and on people groups. He does that. But as a rule, what we see is kindness, patience, forbearance, all of it designed for one purpose, to draw those who are opposed to him and lead them back to him. Romans chapter 2. 
Or do you show contempt for the riches of this kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's a kindness that leads to repentance. That's how God treats those who are opposed to him. And Jesus asked, do you want to be children of God? Do you want to be God-like? Do you want to become people who see every person, including those people who have hurt you, as God's image? Do you want to become somebody who seeks to understand everybody's story? That their anger, their rage, their hatred, their cruelty comes out of somewhere broken. And maybe, just maybe, there's a way God can bring them back. And so you love them, you pray for them, and you live in a way that maybe causes them to turn toward God. How are we supposed to do that? Well, Jesus gives us three examples. Um... One of them is, turn the other cheek. The other is, hand over your coat. And the third one is, go with them an extra mile. He gives you three examples. And the problem with these examples is that they're all rooted thoroughly in the first century. And so we're, we in the 21st century, we, we read that and we go, well, I don't know what that means. It sounds like we're just supposed to be doormats, right? We're supposed to just let people walk all over us. And that is not what's happening. Okay? Jesus is not a doormat. Right? He doesn't want you to be a doormat. But Jesus does say this. Do you want to be children of God? Do you want to be God-like? Do you want to be whole? Okay. Then see people who are trying to hurt you as enemies that are being invited into the kingdom. To do that, you don't strike back. You don't hurt. You offer kindness with an edge. Kindness with an edge. And that's what all these three examples are. So first one, um, someone slaps you on the right cheek, okay? So most people are right-handed. So I'm going to slap somebody on the right cheek. Am I hitting the right cheek? No, that's the left cheek. So <laughs> that doesn't work, right? No, this is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about this. Jesus is talking about this. And now I'm hitting the right cheek, okay? This is not about somebody trying to physically hurt you. This is about an insult. This is most likely done in public. There's somebody coming along, and they want to humiliate you. They want to degrade you, and they're doing it in front of everyone. And so Jesus says, when somebody hits you in the right cheek, this is what you do. That's not retaliation. That's not eye for an eye. But it's also not being a doormat. What's happening there? It's an edge. It stuns, it surprises, it sets the other person back. So now there's room for reflection that may, that may lead to repentance. The second one, somebody wants to sue you. Okay, again, Jesus assumes that you're actually righteous and that somebody more powerful who's using the law who's coming after you. And Jesus, remember, is not talking about the rich folks. All right, the, the poor people at the time, you're going to be shocked when you hear this, really. The poor people at the time have two articles of clothing. That's it. That's all they have. They have a shirt and they have a robe. And Jesus says, if somebody's suing you for your shirt, here's what you do in court. You take your robe off, you go naked, and let your nakedness be the rebuke of the oppression of the powerful. 
that the shock of that rebuked them. Edge. The third one is about the Roman army. The Roman law says a Roman soldier has the right to requisition occupied people to help him do stuff. So if a Roman soldier comes and says, hey, carry my stuff for a mile, you say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do the extra mile too, don't worry. What's going on? What was oppression has become an act of generosity. What was adversarial has become a relationship of grace. And now you open space for repentance, for reflection. Kindness with an edge. Now, these three examples don't work in our time. They mean nothing in our time. But the underlying instruction is still the same. Use patience, use kindness, use forbearance to bring about the repentance of those who are against you. Do kindness with an edge. And it's it's not guaranteed to work, no. And that's not what it's about. It's about being whole. It's about being godlike. A few years back, I was teaching an underground seminary in this country where pastors are regularly arrested and interrogated. And when they're not being arrested and interrogated, they're under surveillance. Uh, The government appoints agents, right, assigned to each of these pastors so that whenever they travel out of town, uh, those agents, they follow these pastors. So there I was teaching them the Bible, and, and in between sessions, we're sitting around, and I'm just chatting, and I, so I asked them, like, okay, so how do you avoid surveillance? And they looked at each other, and they looked at this one pastor, and this one pastor says, I don't. In fact, when I'm about to leave somewhere, I print out my itinerary, I go to that agent, and I hand it to him. And I say, here's where I'm going, that way, in case you lose track of me, you don't get in trouble with your superiors. <laughs> My mind was blown. Okay. I was like, I'm here to teach you the Bible, but really, I'm here so you can teach me how to live out the gospel. Do we understand what's going on there? That is love for enemies. That is kindness with an edge. That is kingdom ethics. We have a lot to learn. We live in a world that is not fair. It is just not. And we live in a culture that hungers for justice, hungers for rightness, hungers for for things to be made right. And we see it in our social media. We see it on cable news. We see it in how we're reacting to Ukraine. We see it in the stories we tell ourselves, so many movies and TV shows about criminals and crime and law and police. We see it in stories about superheroes, the longing for a race of minor deities to come along and make things right. That's where we are. We are in a world that cries out for things being made even. And Jesus says, not my people not my kingdom. Jesus, my people, when they encounter injustice, they give up the right to be made, to, 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 to make, to get even. They give up that right. My people are people who reflect God, who are whole, and they're committed to God's mission of transforming enemies into the children of God.
I know some of you are thinking, this is bonkers, Charles. This is, this is, this is unrealistic. This is simply not pragmatic. It's impractical. It'll never work. And you know what? You're right. You're right. It's not realistic. It's not pragmatic. It's not practical. But can I remind you that we are a people who believe that this guy 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire killed on a cross, that we believe that he is actually God and that we believe that he resurrected from the dead, that he's alive today, that you and I can actually get to know him and we actually talk to him on a regular basis. And we believe that this person is coming back one day to rule this world. And we actually tell people about this. When has pragmatism and being real been the primary motivation of the people of God? You know what's real to us? The power of God to transform lives, to draw those who are enemies to himself because we've experienced it. We are the enemies that have been made children. So we know, we know what's possible. And that's what's real to us. Now I know some of you, this is so hard because of what you've gone through. And I get it. And remember, let's get back to what the Sermon on the Mount is. It's not about willpower. It's not about trying to love somebody that you can't love. No, this is an invitation. Jesus is asking, do you want to become this person? I know your anger, your pain is pulling you apart. Do you want to become whole? I can show you. I, I've been there. I've been betrayed by close loved ones. I've been publicly mocked. I've been falsely accused in a courtroom. I've been physically assaulted. I was stripped naked in front of a crowd and I suffered the agonizing pain of dying on that Roman torture device. I've been there. And I can show you what it's like to be whole. I can show you how to get there. Come walk with me. Right now, we're going to get into a time of prayer, and we're going to try to do something that Jesus tells us we should do, which is to pray for our enemies. And I think for many of us, this is going to be really, really hard. Just really, really hard. So everybody, sites and venues, a deep breath. All the sites and venues, I'm going to invite the venue pastor to come up and lead us in a time of prayer.